You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Before I get started with this episode, I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much to anybody who has listened so far, even for a second, shared it with anybody, giving me any type of constructive feedback. It goes such a long way. As of this last Monday, March the 14th, 2022, we ranked number eight in the history genre on Apple Podcasts. We ranked as high as 10 on the history genre on Spotify, and we ranked across every podcast on Apple Podcasts, no matter the genre, we ranked 178th. I know that doesn't sound like high, but there are hundreds of thousands of podcasts in the world right now, and we ranked 178th. So I appreciate it. And let's keep this wild ride going. Let's get into the show. Hmm. So where were we? Oh, yeah. Mary Bowser was born Mary Jane Richards into slavery in Richmond, Virginia in 1839. At around the age of 11, her master's daughter bought her, immediately freed her, and sent her to Philadelphia to be educated. This is where she did work for the Underground Railroad, lost her mother, and watched the country slowly fall into the depths of hell, and realized that even though she was free, black people couldn't be free until they were all free. This is part two of the story of Mary Bowser, and this is the Redacted History Podcast. So, happy Women's History Month again, and welcome back. Last week, we dove headfirst into the story of one of the most courageous women to ever exist, Mary Bowser. Our story picks back up in 1859 after the hanging of John Brown and the events at Harper's Ferry, a failed slave rebellion that aided in setting the tone for what was to come in the Civil War in a couple of years. There were widespread riots and uprisings of angry northern white people in Philadelphia, The people whom Mary knew hated black people, but not this much. During her time in Philadelphia, she spent a lot of time with rich and affluent white people, mostly white women, who bore attitudes of, you know, those black people, they're cool, as long as they're not equal. So she decided it was best to go back to Richmond to be with her father and to discuss steps towards becoming an abolitionist with her former owner, Elizabeth Van Loo, even though she knew that it would be the riskiest attempt ever. Now, if Mary had it her way, she would have left Richmond right then and there. But she waited a year to see how the election of 1860 would play out. Mary and a lot of black people were really hopeful that Senator William Seward would get the Republican nomination to then run in the 1860 election. He was a founder of the original Republican Party. And before y'all start, the Republican Party in the mid-19th century actually opposed slavery, and the Democrats did not. But there was an ideological switch between 1865 and 1936. So next time a Karen or Kenneth starts yapping at you about this online, put them on game. Anyway... William Seward, on paper, was the perfect person in the eyes of a black person, including Mary. He heavily supported abolition and immigration, and of course, that meant he couldn't win. Abraham Lincoln won because the platform he ran on promised to not interfere with slavery, but that slavery also wouldn't expand to the West. I wonder how that turned out, but we'll get back to Abe later. In order to get to Richmond, Mary had to enlist the help of old friends from the Underground Railroad. It's not like she could just get on a horse and ride down there herself. She got the help from an Irish abolitionist named Thomas McNiven, who will be very important to this story. McNiven was a harsh-talking Irishman who worked as an Underground Railroad transporter. His job was typically to transport slaves through Virginia and the Carolinas up to the north, sometimes as far as New York or Michigan. Now keep up with me here. McNiven connected Mary 
to the cousin of Mary's former school teacher, a free black man named Wilson Bowser. Wink, wink, wink. Wilson was a barber living in Richmond who did some side work transporting runaway enslaved folk from Virginia to freedom and would eventually become Mary's husband, thus her becoming Mary Bowser. You see, you see, you see how that worked out? Once Mary was back in Richmond, she wasted no time meeting up with her father, who was not very excited to see her. The years had not been kind to him at all. He was aging terribly due to the harsh conditions of the blacksmith shop he worked in. His owner was still making him work six days a week, only getting Sunday off. He was suffering from rheumatism and arthritis and a broken heart. It also wasn't helping that her father was forced to sleep in like a five by five shed in the back of the property. It also hurt her that her father wasn't happy to see her. Because he felt like she wasted her opportunity for freedom. You're up in Philadelphia, you're learning, you're being educated, you're, you're politicking with all these white people, and you chose to come back to the South while we're about to go to war. Okay, sure. Now, someone who was happy to see her was Elizabeth Van Loo, the quick-witted abolitionist who more than a decade earlier had purchased seven slaves from her mother and freed them immediately, two of those slaves being Mary and her mother Minerva. She spent much of the inheritance from her father's death to free her slaves and more slaves throughout Richmond. But Elizabeth knew that her work was just getting started. She knew, just as well as Mary knew, that the country was about to fall flat on its face very, very soon. And that all started with South Carolina. This podcast episode is brought to you by Patreon. If you want to support me in the podcast and what we do here, go to patreon.com forward slash blackout, B-L-A-C-K-K-O-U-T, and you'll get access to merch drops, voted on what we do on TikTok, as well as the podcast, as well as live streams and many other bonuses. Let's get back to the show. Abraham Lincoln was elected president on November 6th, 1860, and South Carolina said, deuces. They succeeded almost immediately from the Union on December 20th, 1860, and Mississippi, Georgia, and Alabama all followed suit soon thereafter. Three states that I would absolutely expect that from, by the way. And other southern states were ready. And of course, when all this was getting ready to happen, the sitting president, James Buchanan, did absolutely nothing. He, he, he was a puppet. He was, like I said, the end of the string of terrible presidents from all the way from Andrew Jackson in the 1820s up to him in 1859. And Mary knew it was only a matter of time before Virginia did its own succession. Mary saw the Union like a grease fire and the leadership of the nation chose to just douse it with water. The Missouri Compromise, the Compromise of 1850, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, etc., etc., etc. And any time there were any kind of slave uprisings, uh, think Nat Turner, think John Brown, they were quickly silenced, white panic ensued, and the status quo was quickly gone back to. In the spring of 1861, the Virginia Succession Convention was held to determine whether the state would leave the Union or not. Mary attended this convention and found that it was just a bunch of old white guys babbling about their own interests. She grew so impatient with the back and forth that one night during the convention, she wrote a letter to a succession sentiment paper called The Inquirer. The note urged Virginia to basically shut up and go to war. She signed the note under a fake name, Virginia Veritas. Mary's thought process was that maybe if she helped encourage the war and got folk talking about it, the quicker it would come and the quicker slavery would end. 
Here's a quote from a succession newspaper called the Charleston Mercury. The issue before the country is the extension of slavery. The southern states are now in the crisis of their fate. And if we read about the signs of the times, nothing is needed for our deliverance. But that ball of revolution be set in motion. I just feel like that was kind of dramatic, but whatever. So basically what was happening was you have all these southern states that are sweaty and ready, willing to go, succeeding left and right. And Virginia is kind of dragging its feet. And just about as soon as the delegates casted their vote to succeed in Virginia, the Confederate flag was raised over Virginia and the Confederate capital was moved to Richmond. And on April 12, 1861, Fort Sumter was attacked and the Civil War had officially begun. Mary knew that this meant either the beginning of what could lead to her new life and the new life of all the black people across the nation. She would be a freed woman for real this time with her freed father for real this time or it could lead to the beginning of the end. Living in Richmond caused Mary to experience a lot of the realities of war, just how living in Philadelphia caused her to experience the true sentiments that white people had towards black people, enslaved or freed, and just how living in slavery in Richmond the first time caused her to experience the real realities of slavery. As the war began, people grew discontented in the city. Small lines began to be drawn. The economy changed and reality set in. After the first Battle of Bull Run, where 35,000 Union soldiers marched to take Richmond and lost, Mary saw Confederate corpses being unloaded from trains while their families, wives, sons, daughters, parents screamed in agony. No one wins in war. Around this time, Mary spent a lot of time with Wilson and a lot of time bonding with her father on Sundays because that's when his master gave him a day off. And it was right around this time that Mary and Wilson officially tied the knot and became husband and wife. And they were living a very modest and happy life. Ish. You know, there was still the anxiety of war and whether slavery would be abolished or not. You know, just normal things. At this point, since she was back in Richmond, Mary had to pose as a slave again, abiding by curfews and things of the sort. In comes Elizabeth Van Lu. Right after the Battle of Bull Run, Elizabeth got intel that there were Union soldiers being held in tobacco factories. They were being kept off of death records and starved. Elizabeth had a horse carriage of provisions that she wished to take to these soldiers and wanted Mary's help. So Elizabeth, with Mary posing as her slave servant, went to a tobacco factory where dozens of Union soldiers were being held, used her whiteness to get past the guards, and made it inside. As they were passing out food and water to the prisoners, Mary stumbled upon a man who said, Someone else can have my rations. Can you just get a message to my family? His family was from the deep north and, of course, had no clue of his whereabouts. So Mary, thinking on her feet, bends down, hands the man a book and says, Take this book, but be careful. My mistress is quick to notice any marks inside of it. Any marks at all. He made markings in the book and covertly returned the book back to Mary. She raced home and checked the markings from the man. The man developed a code that Mary was able to easily decipher. She found out his name was Timothy and that his family was from Augusta, Maine. Here's what the code looked like, and feel free to play along on a piece of paper or the notes app in your phone. The sentence said, there is one mind of this history. He took the word one and crossed through it completely. He took the beginning letter of every word and underlined it. And then he also underlined the Y in the word history. So now if you take all the underlined letters, what does it say? Timothy. His name was Timothy. 
Mary felt so proud and didn't realize that this was her first real act of espionage. She was a spy. Mary and Elizabeth continued to visit the prisons without Elizabeth ever knowing what Mary was doing. Mary had developed a system through the prison where Timothy would collect names, addresses, and more from other prisoners. Mary would take this information every night and create her own code that was kind of in line with what Timothy had already created. She would then smuggle these letters to our favorite Irishman, Thomas McNiven, who would then smuggle the information north to the families of the prisoners. Word quickly got out that two Richmond women were assisting Union soldiers in the war prisons. Luckily for Mary, race wasn't specified in the gossip. When Elizabeth Van Loo got word of the gossip, Mary was afraid she would panic and end the missions. But she clearly didn't know Elizabeth. Elizabeth welcomed this and began plans to further their work and begin a spy ring of sorts. Mary said to Elizabeth, Attracting new noise means attracting trouble. Are you not worried? All it takes is a few folk to go form a mob, and if they come up here to your house, God knows what could happen. Elizabeth responded with, I would like to see them try. I am proud to have these uncouth rebels know all that we are doing for the Union. Elizabeth made some minor tweaks to how Mary was getting her messages up north. Instead of having McNiven take the messages and make long journeys on horseback up through Virginia, she would instead ride the messages herself to a farm outside of Richmond where she had abolitionist allies. The messages would then be sent down the James River. This was a better system because Thomas McNiven riding up and down through and out through Virginia wasn't really the best idea with war going on. There were federal and union blockades everywhere, and all it would take was for him to be caught and questioned by the wrong Confederate soldier. And then, boom, everything goes to hell. Elizabeth supplied Mary with a specific kind of paper, and they devised a solid code to be used so that the messages were ever to be intercepted by the wrong party. They wouldn't be caught. Soon, people of Richmond found out that the cost of war was steep. Overpopulation and starvation riddled the city. Lots of folks thought that the war would be over within a couple of months. But it was quickly realized that this was a several years long war, at the very least, that they had signed up for. As Mary continued her work with Elizabeth in the prisons, she was shocked to find out that there were boys as young as 15 years old that had been captured. And she wondered how many more boys didn't even survive long enough to be captured. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Mary spent the sixth anniversary of her mother's death in the late winter of 1862 at her grave. She felt like this was such a chaotic time in her life that maybe her mother could speak to her and give her a sign. That evening, she left the grave to walk back home and could feel someone following her. There was a presence behind her. She knew it was a man, but she did not know who it was. Quickly, as she sped up her pace, an arm reached out from the shadows and grabbed her. She looked back, and it was McNiven, Thomas McNiven. McNiven had been stuck in Richmond more often than not because the ongoing war outside of Richmond and in D.C. caused him to have to pause a lot of his underground railroad work. 
So in the meantime, he had been masquerading as a slave owner around Richmond, politicking with the other masters and rich folk alike to collect intel on Confederate happenings. And in this act, he stumbled upon the info that Jefferson Davis, the Confederate president, and his family were moving his direct headquarters to Richmond, Virginia. McNiven told Mary, I have some use for you. Mary said, nah, I'm already working in the prisons with Elizabeth. McNiven said, no, Elizabeth can do that work by herself. This job is reserved for a black girl with genius intellect. Bingo, that's you. Jefferson Davis and his wife Verena had put out an ad in the Inquirer newspaper for a maid and a servant girl. McNiven, still posing as a slaveholder, took the ad and rendered his slave, Mary, to their service. The plan was for Mary to infiltrate the Davis residence and give any information she could back to McNiven to be used to the Union Army for the to be used for the Union Army against the Confederates. Mary wasn't too keen with McNiven's acting as a slaveholder, but kept her mind on the bigger prize. Wilson also wasn't too keen to the idea, but hey, you got to do what you got to do. And he realized who he had married. Wilson agreed to help pick up the slack on helping the transport of anything confidential to be transported up north while still occasionally helping out on the Underground Railroad. So there you have it, a four-person ragtag spy team, Elizabeth Van Loo operating the Confederate prisons, McNiven and Wilson working as transporters, and Mary in the house of Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy. Over the next two years, Mary worked in the Davis household, looking after his annoying children, scrubbing floors, and waiting on the hand and foot of his wife, Verena. It reminded her of her early years at the Van Loo household, waiting on these rich white women as they exchanged secrets over dinner. It was around this time that Mary's father, Louis, contracted smallpox and passed away alone in a colors-only infirmary. Now Mary had lost one of the reasons she came back to Richmond, and this ignited a fire in her to keep up the work that she was doing so that she so that she could play a part in ending slavery. While serving in the Confederate household, Mary, of course, did not go by the name Mary. She went by the name Molly. And it wasn't long before Mary found her first piece of information that would be useful to the Union Army. So, she was working in the house with other slave women who, you know, they worked as a maid crew. They would, you know, clean, serve dinners, the same thing that she did in the Van Loo household. Whenever there was downtime or time that she could sneak away, she would sneak into Jefferson Davis's office. And this is when she found her first piece. She found a correspondence from the Gosport Naval Yard to Jefferson Davis. It read, Mr. President, the CSS Virginia sits in Norfolk, fully clad in iron, awaiting only coal before she attacks a Union fleet at the mouth of the James River. Our naval men look forward to their historic voyage on behalf of the Confederacy. Mary took this information and gave it to McNiven, who tried to pay her for it, but she refused, saying, I'm no mercenary. Whatever I do in the Davis household is to end slavery. Some of Mary's best intel came from the mouth of Judah Benjamin, a Confederate cabinet member who spent his downtime at the Davis household gossiping with First Lady Verena. Through a gossip session, Mary learned that the CSS Virginia had attacked three different Union ships, but was battled to a draw by the U.S. Mo but was battled to a draw by the USS Monitor, who was able to sail down from New York in battle. They were able to sail down in battle because of certain intel that they had got that had worked. Mary knew 
She wanted to continue to do more, but she needed to be careful. Spying was more dangerous as ever. There was actually another spy ring working out of Richmond, and one of their head spies, Timothy Webster, and one of their head spies, a white man named Timothy Webster, was caught, and he ended up being the first American spy hanged in almost a hundred years. Over the course of the next couple of years, Mary bided her time in the Davis household, siphoning information and intel related to Confederate casualty rates, battle plans for Vicksburg and Gettysburg. She was able to get information for shipments and weapon deliveries. And she was also able to watch the Confederate army whittle away and dwindle and lose their confidence through the eyes and words of Judah Benjamin and Jefferson Davis. There were even rumors that the intelligence that Mary helped deliver aided Elizabeth Van Lu in instigating the Libby Prison Break. Libby Prison was a Confederate prison where Union soldiers were housed and 100 prisoners escaped in February of 1864. Mary Bowser in the Civil War gives one of a first-person view into the experience of a black person during this war. You have the Confederates in the South that, of course, want to keep the institution of slavery. You have the white folk in the North who are cool with black folk being free but not equal. Take the New York City draft riots, for example, where working-class white New Yorkers were enraged at Congress's decision to draft men into the war to fight for the freedom of black people. This was some of the most destructive and bloodiest race-related violence to ever occur, resulting in over 100 deaths and 2,000 injuries. And lastly, let's take Abraham Lincoln. Let's look at a quote of his from the New York Tribune in August of 1862, and you let me know what you think. My paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union and is not either to save or to destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps to save the Union. And what I forbear, I forbear because I do not believe it would help to save the Union. So when we hear all of those things about how much Abraham Lincoln cared for black people, uh, you know, take quotes like that into account. By the time April 1865 came, all you could hear in the streets of Richmond, Virginia, were the jubilant cheers of black folks in the street. The Union had won the war and made it to Richmond. Jefferson Davis and his people had fled. Many of the rich white families in Richmond had lost their fortunes and now they're slaves. And overall, 620,000 men had lost their lives. But the important thing is, at least the right side had won. And we always hear that it is because of this man or that man or Lincoln. But we never really talk about how the black men and women who fought, spied, nursed, and risked their lives so that the future generations of black Americans could live lives without persecution Albeit, it took us a while to get there, and some would say we still aren't fully there. But damn, we have come a long way. After the war, Thomas McNiven sailed off into the sunset, and not much is known about his post-war whereabouts. Wilson Bowser might have died rather young. He suffered injuries during the war when he was conscripted to serve in a United States Colored Troops Regiment. And Elizabeth Van Loo actually got an open thank you from General Ulysses S. Grant. She was appointed postmaster of Richmond and employed black folk and paid them equal wages. She spent the rest of her life ostracized by white Southerners and broke because she spent most of her family's fortune on espionage during the war. She died in September of 1900 and was inducted into the Military Intelligence Hall of Fame in 1993. 
After the war, Mary Bowser began to slowly fade into the shadows. She supposedly went on to teach free black women. She gave lectures in the North about her life and wartime activities. And while doing all of this, she used pseudonyms to protect her identity, like Richmonia Richards and Richmonia St. Pierre. And using her birth name, Mary Jane Richards, she founded a Freeman's school in Georgia around 1867. She eventually remarried, and that is about it. And that's all we really know about Mary Bowser. That's all we really know about the little black girl born into slavery, freed, gone to Philadelphia to educate herself. And in all of her freedom, every black person's dream at that time, she made the conscious decision to risk her life, go back down south during the middle of the Civil War, basically put herself back into slavery so that she could do her part in making sure that the institution of slavery could die forever. And I wish there was more. But using documentation in our imagination, she left behind just enough for us to tell her story. And I think that's what she wanted. This Women's History Month, we salute Mary Bowser. Until next time, peace. If you like this episode of the Redacted History Podcast, be sure to leave a like, rating, or review on the respective podcast player that you're listening on. I truly appreciate it.